Well, we are about to look now at the sixth of the seven churches. And as Daryl mentioned this morning, this is the good church. It is the best of all of the churches that our Lord Jesus Christ addresses. And because of that, when we read uh, study Bibles or commentaries, you can take a wild guess as to which church the author desires his church to be. Which one he thinks applies to his era or the era of the faithful church. It's, of course, the church in Philadelphia. It's an aptly named city for this church because Philadelphia, of course, means love for the brother. The city of brotherly love. And what marks the believer more than love for the fellow believer? More than commitment to seeing growth in grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think, as we have said, these are not specific eras of churches, but rather they are principles that we need to apply in our own lives and in our own church and in our own nation. We need to ask ourselves some hard questions about this. We need to ask ourselves, do we really want to be like Philadelphia? Don't answer too quickly. We want the good, don't we? But do we really want to have our strength be found in weakness? Because Philadelphia is a church of little power. Do we really want to have our great hope be found in the context of trouble and persecution? Because Philadelphia is a church beset by problems from outside. Do we really, really want to be a church that trusts wholly in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if we do, as the hymnist writes, those who trust Him wholly find Him wholly true. Holy, W-H-O-L-E. And that's what our Lord Jesus writes to this church in Philadelphia, that He is the Holy One and He is the True One. This is a church that receives no condemnation from Jesus, no rebuke, but yet still is challenged. It is a challenge. You see, you never arrive as a Christian. You never arrive as a church. You never arrive as a follower of Jesus Christ. You simply move on to the next challenge that the Lord places before you. That's what we see here. And so, briefly this evening, I'd like us to see three things around this letter to Philadelphia. First, we're going to look at the promise maker. The one who makes the promise, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then secondly, we will look at the promise itself, the promise that Jesus makes. And then third, we will look at the reward that comes. The promise maker, the promise, and the reward. This letter, like every other letter, begins with a description of Jesus Christ. And perhaps you're getting a feel for it by now that Jesus emphasizes different things in His uh, beginning address to each one of these churches. That sometimes he's the one who has eyes like flames of fire. At other times he's the one who has died and come back to life. At another time he's the one who holds the seven stars in his hands. But here to Philadelphia he is the one who is holy, true, and who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. What does this tell us about Jesus? What does this tell us about who He is in this letter? Well, I think this 
description of the promise maker is broken down into two parts. The first is it describes the character of Jesus Christ, who he is in his nature. And then the second description describes the authority of Christ, what power he has. Thinking about Christ's character, we see that he is called the Holy One. Now, what does that mean? To be holy, totally separate and other. You think about this even as we think about holy instruments or implements or things. They are set apart from ordinary use. We see that each Lord's Day as we set apart the elements of the bread and the fruit of the vine and they become different. They are not changed. There's no substance that has changed, but they are set apart. This is perhaps the best and most perfect description of God. It is the crown of all of His attributes. He is holy. It is actually the one attribute that is essential to deity. God cannot be God, but that He is holy. But that He is other, He is perfect and pure. We saw this this morning in Sunday school, and we even sang it again this evening. The famous passage in Isaiah 6, verse 3, as the cherubim and the seraphim, holy beings themselves, angels, cannot stand before the holiness of God. And they call to one another and they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Have you ever thought about that? You sung that hymn, perhaps like me, hundreds of times. What does it mean for the whole earth to be filled with the glory of God? It means that there is nowhere that you can go where God is not. Nowhere that you can go where the presence of the Lord is not felt. No sadness, no pain, no place where God cannot be found. What a comfort to us. And this is not just true of God in the Old Testament. It is true of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even the demons knew this. For they said in Luke 4, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know that you are the Holy One of God. And in John chapter 6 we read, We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The prophet Isaiah is often called, his book is often called the Gospel of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And the most common designation for God in that prophet's book is the Holy One of Israel. This is who God is. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is God. This is a truism, but we need it repeated to us over and over again. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord God of all things. But He's not just the Holy One. He is also the True One. Now, note that it is not that He just speaks true things. Creatures do that. It is not just that He knows truth. It is not just that He is bounded by truth. No, it is that He is truth. Truth is not an abstract quality. You will learn, especially young people, as you go to high school and to college and beyond, you will hear philosophies and you will hear scientists and they will speak about truth as something abstract. The laws of the universe, the way things work, the way truth is found, that two plus two must be four. It cannot be five. 
But the reason that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is because Jesus has decreed it. He is not bound by truth. He does not have to fit within its framework. He is the true one. He is always trustworthy. He is always faithful because He is truth. But Jesus also has great and powerful authority. It's an authority that is found over the whole world. You'll see here that He has the key of David. And the language here is very easy to understand. Right? The youngest among us can understand that. He opens. No one else shuts. He shuts. No one else opens. Who has more power than Jesus? No one. In the simplest of ways, He describes for us how mighty and powerful He is. And He has authority over the whole world. He is the Creator of the universe. He is the Sustainer of the universe. Have you thought about the fact that but for Jesus sustaining the universe, we would melt into nothingness. The floor would open up underneath us. Molecules would break apart. Wood would disintegrate. The universe would be wrapped into nothingness. But for the power of Jesus Christ right now sustaining the world. This is the kind of authority that Jesus has. But He also has a special authority over His church. This key of David is the key of the kingdom. You may recall previously in in chapter 1, verse 18, that Jesus had the keys of death and Hades. He has the power over life and death, but He has the power over more than life and death. Jesus decides who is in the covenant. Jesus decides who comes into the kingdom. He opens the doors to the kingdom and none can shut. He sets the terms. Not we. Not our imaginations. Not our hopes. Not what people think by majority vote. No, Jesus has the keys to the kingdom. To covenant membership. To salvation. This is similar to the way it was described in Isaiah 22 of the one who took over the office of the king. Where the king said, I will place on his shoulder the king of the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. In Isaiah 22, verse 22. Jesus is completely in charge of His church. We would do well to remember that, just as Philadelphia does. But He is also in charge. He has authority over individuals in His church. The church is not just some amorphous group of people. It is you. It is me. You know the the cliche that is so true that the church is not the building, but it is the people. Jesus is not just in charge of structures. He is in charge of each one of His people. He has authority over Him. He is the one before whom we must stand. He is the one upon whom we depend for all things. Well, this is the one who writes to the church at Philadelphia and, quite frankly, to the church at Katy as well. He is the promise maker. So then what is the promise? What promise do we get from Jesus Christ? Well, I think we see three aspects of it. First, that Jesus Christ opens the doors. And then second, that Jesus Christ brings the victory. 
And third, that He brings perseverance to us. That we might persevere in the faith. We see that He opens the doors, as we've read here in verse 7. He opens and none will shut. He shuts and none open. This is a testimony to His work. He is the one who has completed all that needs to be completed. He is the one that works in us and through us we contribute nothing. Now what does it mean to have this door open? Well, I think it means at least two things. The first is to the unbeliever. That Jesus Christ opens up the entrance to the kingdom. And so if tonight you are not sure about who Jesus is, maybe you have talked or thought about Him in a certain way just because your parents do. And that can be true whether you're sitting here tonight and you're six or you're 60. Perhaps you're not quite sure about the demands that Jesus makes. Perhaps you're not quite sure about what it means to be a follower of Christ. Well, Jesus Christ will open the door for you by faith. He's the only one who can open the door to eternal life. You can't go around. You can't jump over the top. You can't pole vault in. You cannot get into the kingdom, but Jesus Christ opened the door for you. If you be in the kingdom of God... You must have faith in Jesus. No matter how many times you have professed His name, you must trust Him wholly now. You must cast everything upon Him because He is your only hope. He is the only one who can open. But I think even for the believer, there is a sense in which He opens a door for us, a door of evangelism and of service. Paul speaks in very similar language in his letters For example, in 1 Corinthians 16, he speaks of a door that is wide open for effective work. It is a door that has been opened to him, even though there are many adversaries about him. He also, Paul asks for our prayers, for the prayers of the Colossian church. In Colossians chapter 4, where he says, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Do you want to be of service to the Lord? Do you want to see people brought to know the Lord Jesus? Do you want to help others in sadness? Do you want to equip others? Then pray that the Lord would open a door. The one who holds the keys of David will open that door of service for you. He will make you fruitful. Now, this should cause us to be encouraged. We who are weak like the church in Philadelphia. Because the one who holds the keys to the doors of the kingdom is the same one who said, Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You see, Jesus gives the kingdom to His people. He delights in showing His strength in weakness. He delights in knowing that we can do all things, as Paul says, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The promise is that Jesus will open the door and none will shut. But there's also a promise of victory. Do you see here in verse 9, he says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn 
that I have loved you. Now, there are two things going on here. The first, I think, is, is obvious. The, the first is that Jesus Christ brings victory over evil. And this is almost too simple for us. It is almost Hollywood in its scope. You have good and you have bad. And Jesus the good beats the bad. Those who are persecuting the church in Philadelphia, Jesus will overcome. He has won the victory. And on some level, we long for that in our own lives, don't we? From the boss who persecutes us, to the neighbor who is difficult, to the physical ailments that we have that beset us, to death itself which is an enemy. We long to see Jesus conquer evil and our enemies. But I think there's something else going on here in the language because this is very similar language to a passage in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 14. Let me read it to you. He says, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. You see, there Isaiah is describing how the Gentiles will come to the Jews and whom they have persecuted, whom they have mocked, and they will acknowledge their place before God. But here there's a reversal. Here it is the Jews who will come before a multi-ethnic church. Now, why do I raise this point? It's because this is not just about beating the bad guys. The work of Jesus Christ, the hope of His victory, is that He converts wickedness to holiness. He takes those who are enemies and He makes them sons and daughters. And you see, I think that's the promise that we see here. Those who are lying Jews, who think they are Jews but are not, who mock the Lord Jesus Christ, who attack His church, they will be brought to bow down to Jesus they will be brought in to the kingdom. This is a victory that God promises in His Word. It's the whole purpose of the time of the Gentiles. You know this, that God in His mercy has grafted the Gentiles in, that the Jews might be envious and that they might be regrafted in. You see, Jesus is at work not just defeating evil, but building people. This should be an encouragement to us if we waver. Because Jesus is at work in our midst. Thirdly here, Jesus promises perseverance. He knows our weakness. He says here to the church at Philadelphia, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. He knows that we need encouragement that we need to know that He is on our side. And even things like the fact that the trial that is coming is short. It's an hour. It's not a year. It's not a month. And He does this to remind us that we must be humble. We must not be self-confident. He is the one who preserves us. Well, thirdly and finally... We've seen the promise maker and the promise, but also let's look at the reward. What is the reward that is promised to those who overcome? The reward that is promised is life with Christ and being Christ's. 
first life with Christ. Do you see how he describes it? He says, the one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, you need to move past a little bit of the picture that you're getting in your mind of kind of a a white marble pillar sitting in the midst of a clean, cold temple. Being a pillar in the temple of the Lord God means that we are a part of His temple. We are a part of the body of Christ. We are built up by Jesus. And that also means that we are never to be out of the temple. You see, this promise, this reward is the answer to David's prayer. Do you remember David's prayer? That he would desire to be in the Lord's temple forever. To rather dwell with the Lord than in the tents of wickedness. You see, once you are in the temple of God, once you are in the people of God, you will never be lost. You are there at all times. You will live with Jesus Christ, knowing that His purpose has been consummated. His work is finished. All our labors are done. And we will exist to glorify the Lord God. But the reward, finally, is more than just living with Christ. Or being with Christ. The reward is being Christ's. Apostrophe S. We know that we are the possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the name of God put upon us. We possess a new heavenly country, the new Jerusalem, Jesus writes. But we possess it because Jesus possesses us. We are no longer free to wander in sin. We are no longer free to go from God. We are bound together with cords of love forever to be with the Lord. His possession bought with His blood. Does that give you great hope? It should. For nothing that Jesus has will He ever lose, from the least to the greatest. This little church in Philadelphia went through a great many difficulties. But they were known by Jesus Christ. And He desired that they would know this. That's why He wrote them this letter. He desired that you would know this. That's why He gave this letter to you. Take hope from it. You are Jesus's. Let's pray.